right. This series is called A Whole Heart, all right? Really complex title, right? A Whole Heart. But here's where this series comes from. Do you guys remember when Jesus, and this is a Jesus series, by the way, the next three weeks are going to be all text about what the encounters that Jesus had and the teaching of Jesus. Do you guys remember maybe when Jesus was asked by the religious leaders, uh, because they had about 613-ish, depending on what you look at, 613, 614, uh, commands to follow in terms of the law. That was the big 10 plus the Levitical law and all that sort of thing. Um, and they asked Jesus, hey, what's the most important commandment? You guys remember this? Nod your head if you're with me. What's the most important commandment, right? Well, Jesus reaches back and he, he takes basically two, one that was named in Deuteronomy, one that was named in, Le- in Leviticus, and he takes two that they would have known and he combines them into sort of like two things, two sides of a coin, and, and it's, but, it, but it's one commandment. It's, it's the same for both. But he starts it this way, and this is where we're going to, we're going to do the whole commandment. We're going to do the very beginning just to see what we're talking about, because this is the way it starts. He replied and said, look, you must love the Lord your God with, just say the words out loud, all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Sometimes you go back to Deuteronomy and it says, and all your strength, Right? Sometimes there's a fourth one there. But it's body, soul, mind, spirit. I mean, it's all these things, this beautiful picture of a wholeness, right, to us. And I think as a church, we do a pretty good job of, a, of kind of addressing the back half of this, which is love your neighbor as yourself. It's always the action in which we live um, in one, you know, with one another and how we kind of function in this world. Uh, but every once in a while, we talk specifically about the idea of like, what does it look like to love God with all of our mind? And we're going to talk about mental health and some things coming up in the future. And we're going to talk about kind of how that works, winning the battle in your mind. And we're going to talk a little bit. We obviously spend time talking about our soul in terms of salvation, in terms of the importance of how God's wired us and made us. But this series is coming from the idea of like, well, what did Jesus mean? And what does it look like to, be, to have a whole heart, to be all of your heart, right? And you can ask different people and they, they might talk about love and they might talk about, you know, uh, the, the seed of the emotions for, for your heart and the heart of your mind, which is still transforming of your mind. There's lots of different things. But when we look at scripture, we get this sort of ideal definition of what what being said there in terms of a whole heart or all of your heart. And the best word we can use, the best word we can use is the word devotion. Everybody with me? Devotion. Because when I say devotion, I think you put that in your picture in your mind. Like devotion is a wholeheartedness, right? It's, it's, it's everything. Nothing holding you back, right? It's a devotion. It's, a, it's the fullness, if you will, of, of a devotion would be a wholeheartedness and a whole heart. And Jesus spoke very often about the heart. And sometimes he talked about the conflict that is there. So the title of this message today, and I don't usually do this, but I'm giving you the title today. It's called The War for Your Heart. Because Jesus does address the war for your heart. And we're going to talk specifically about an encounter. I'm going to spend a little bit more time today on one specific encounter that Jesus had and maybe talk about it in a way that you've never heard it before or at least ask you to consider some questions about this encounter that maybe you have never really considered. All right? I'm not saying that this, this encounter is often taught wrong. I'm just saying that it has some confusion in it. 
Okay, there's, there's things about this encounter that often get confusing, and so people like to do, you know, what we all do, right? We just kind of skip over it, right? We skip past it. Or we go right to the part we understand, we go right to the part that's maybe an application point or whatever the case is. That's fine. But I want to just kind of dive into this encounter. It's not a parable. It's an actual encounter that Jesus has, and then he takes time, as he always did, to teach his disciples something from the encounter. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Mark. It's found in a a couple of records of the Gospels, but um, it's Mark we're going to read today, Mark 10. I'll put it on the screen for those of you that are online and make sure, you know, as I'm reading it, you guys can make sure I'm reading the right thing here. But uh, in this encounter, uh, some people call this the rich young ruler. If you have one of those really awesome Bibles that has subtitles, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Subtitles that tell you the sections, that's what this sometimes is called because this is the encounter. As Jesus was starting out on his way back to Jerusalem, he's actually heading back to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, and he knelt down, and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? What what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus sort of immediately kind of not pushes back, but you know, kind of takes what the guy said and made it kind of a, a statement. The guy did not, the guy did not uh, come up to Jesus and say Messiah or chosen one. Like, you know, at this point in his ministry, you know, Jesus has kind of already declared who he is to some. Uh, but the guy didn't see that. He saw him as a teacher, right? As a, as, a, as a knowledgeable rabbi. But he said, good teacher. So, of course, Jesus pushes back and says, well, why do you call me good? How do you know I'm any good? Right? I tell people that sometimes. How do, you guys, how, do you, how do you know I'm any good? You don't even bring your Bible to church. How do you know I'm reading? The, you know, I can put anything up here I want to, right? How, how do you know I'm good? And he actually says this, only God is truly good. So even Jesus in this small moment just goes, hey, that's, it's kind of nice that you're saying that. And maybe he was acknowledging that maybe the guy recognized it. Like, you know, only God is really good. So kind of put the two to two together if you think I'm good. Why do you call me good? Jesus said, only God is truly good. And then he kind of answers the guy's questions. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely, you know, don't cheat anyone, uh, honor your father and mother. Yeah, those are the the six actions, right? You know the the commandments. You know what to do. Because the guy asked him, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He said, well, you know the law. I'm, a, I'm just a rabbi in your mind, so what is, what is it? Well, follow the law. Follow the teaching of the law. And it says, well, teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all of these commands since I was young. Right? I've obeyed all of these things since I was young. Kind of implying to Jesus, like, I'm a, I'm a lifelong Christian, right? I, I've, been, I've been, this has been since I was young. I have devoted myself to these things, which is, I mean, I'm just telling you, that's what all Jewish, would, he would have made his parents proud. Everybody with me, right? I mean, that's what all Jewish uh, parents would have just loved to hear their kids say, I have devoted my life to this since I was young. And I want you to see this. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. Now, I want to pause here just for a second. 
Because I think, again, sometimes when it's taught, sometimes we rush to the conclusion, sometimes we miss the context, sometimes we miss the fact that this is an actual encounter. This is a real person that Jesus is dealing with. This is not a parable. This is not, you know, this is not some exaggerated story to make a point. This is a real person. And Jesus responds to him and feels, it says specifically, he felt genuine love. I don't know about you, but I've heard this taught a few different ways. And sometimes there's an implication that the rich young ruler is prideful, right? That when he responds to Jesus and says, look, I've done this my whole life. I got the t-shirt, done it, did it, check mark, done. Is that it? Is that it? Is there nothing else? Because I've already done all those things. And it, and it kind of has this, this uh, tone sometimes of like, well, Jesus needed to, to take his next statement to humble him because, uh, because of his arrogance, because of his pride and his own self-effort. But I don't see that here. And the reason I don't see this here is, again, remember, you can always, what did Jesus mean by what he said? Well, you have to look at the way Jesus lived and what else he also said, what else he taught. And we have seen Jesus respond to pride, Okay. The Pharisees, brood of vipers, <laughs> religious leaders, teachers of the law that kept trying to trick him. Like We've seen Jesus respond to people in their pride, and it never started off with Jesus felt really you know, compassionate love for this person. You know, No, that's not what we see. We see him respond to people's pride with a, cl- a clear, clear, crystal clear message of you don't understand. You don't know what you're talking about. So this is why I don't really believe that we can just check, check the rich young ruler off as a, as a prideful, arrogant rule follower. I think we need to consider the fact that what Jesus saw in the rich young ruler was devotion. That what he saw in the rich young ruler was someone who really desperately trying to follow God. Everybody with me? Like devotion, like a heart to want to please God, which is why he, he's done this since he was young. This is important to him. And Jesus responds. Now understand, we're getting ready to read his response, and I want you to know, this response is coming from the same language that's used when, when we talked about this a couple weeks ago, when Jesus looked at the crowd, and he saw the harvest, and he saw the people of God, and he had compassion for them. Like sheep without a shepherd. And they were being harassed and helpless. You guys remember that when I talked about that a few weeks ago? This is the same language, same terminology, at least the same tense of the words. That he felt love, genuine love, as he responds to the rich young ruler. He says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing. There's still one thing that you haven't done. And he told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The guy's question is, how do I secure eternal life? How do I guarantee heaven? Everybody with me? And Jesus says, in love, well, there's something holding you back. There's one thing. Go sell everything you have. 
you will have treasure in heaven. Wasn't that way of Jesus responding that you will be in heaven? Wasn't that a very clear way of Jesus saying, oh, eternal life is yours. You'll have treasure there. And then come and follow me. Be one of my disciples. Come with me. I think this was a genuine invitation. And here's how we read it. Again, people like to jump to this part of the story. The man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Again, I love other versions and paraphrases. A couple of the versions say that he is, his face was clouded over. His face, you know, kind of went blank. But this was the last thing he expected to hear. He walked away with a heavy heart. Why? Because he was holding tight to a lot of things. Right? He had many possessions. And he walks away. Now, Jesus, at this point, we'll keep going, because <laughs> this is when Jesus decides to teach, all right? Again, this is, what, this is common for the Gospels. Encounter, something happens, he decides to teach his disciples something based on the encounter. He looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? of God. Like asking a question out loud. Now watch this. This amazed them. Everybody give me your best amazed face, right? Is everybody with me? Jesus asked a question. I mean, they saw this encounter. They've probably seen people come and like, you know, walk away, come hear Jesus teach about following him, and they all went, well, whatever, we're going home, you know. They've seen this. But this guy has this encounter, and he decides this is a good teaching moment for the disciples. And he says, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Probably shaking his head. And this amazed them. Why? Anybody know why? Anybody have a quick guess? Why did it amaze them? There you go. Very true. Because the rich had the power. And guess what? <laughs> they were still expecting a throne. Right? They were still expecting a throne. Jesus, with there's 12 thrones, right? Beside your throne. Like, we're still expecting you to set up your rule and reign. And for to be like when it was David here and the king of Israel. And to, re and to restore Israel after we wipe these horrible Romans out. And they're expecting wealth. And they're expecting prominence. And they're expecting power, and they're expecting all of the things that would still be classified as rich. They're still expecting this. By the way, they were expecting this pretty much all the way until he died, until his crucifixion, even though he kept telling them that's not what's going to happen. So they're amazed by this. Jesus, how could you make that statement? Oh my goodness. I love this because Jesus knows this. He sees their reaction. Have you ever had a double take? You know what I'm talking about? You have to take twice to look at it. Jesus does a double teach, all right? He says it, sees their response, and has to say it again. Although I think actually this time he says it a little clearer. And maybe with a little bit more compassion. <laughs> Dear children, now keep going back, yeah. It is very hard for those who say the three words out loud, It is very hard for those who trust in riches to enter 
the kingdom of God. I think this was, again, Jesus saying it because he wanted his disciples to understand it. And when it was clear that they didn't, he said, guys, dear children, man, for those who trust in riches, it's very hard. Keep going. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. We're going to pause the story here just because of the example that Jesus gives. Because um, I've, I've heard this taught several different ways, right? But I do want to just kind of address this. Sometimes not really understanding and definitely misunderstanding and misapplying Scripture um, has led to some really bad theology sometimes in the church, in Christian circles. And this particular encounter has done a lot to fuel what we kind of call the poverty gospel in some legalistic you know, circles, all right? Now, you may not have ever heard that. How many of you have heard of the, the prosperity gospel? Raise your hand. You've heard of prosperity gospel. Oh, yeah, everybody loves that one, right? Everybody loves that one. God wants you to be rich and happy and rich and, and happy and rich, right? But the poverty gospel is just as damaging, because there is, in certain circles, I see Don nodding his head because we, we were both raised in the North. <laughs> the poverty gospel comes a lot of times in very legalistic groups that begin to, to use Jesus' teaching and the Bible to try to convince Christians that they really shouldn't have anything. That the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head and therefore it's fine for you to have nowhere to lay your head. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's true. The, po- the poverty gospel comes in and says, not only is, is, is it not prosperity gospel in terms of God wants you to be happy, it's almost this like reverse psychology of like, if you have too much, you should sort of be ashamed of yourself. Are you guys with me? And if you've never listened, if you've never experienced, thank God you've never experienced it. But I have to tell you that oftentimes this has been used to fuel really bad teaching. All right? Because a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. And therefore, the rich cannot go to heaven. Cannot experience the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the story. The way this is taught sometimes to try to make sense of this is that, I mean, outside just the, you know, the, 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 the literal aspect of, well, of course a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. But there was this big story that kind of went around. I've heard this taught a couple times. Uh, where there was, you know, there were, there were gates, big, big, big gates in the city. And, uh, and then inside of the gate was always a little door. You guys know what I'm talking about, a little door? Maybe you've seen this in some of your, you know, medieval shows, right? Little door. Why? Because people wanted to get in and out without having to open the big gate, okay? That's just called wisdom. That's called logic, right? But they say that that door was called the eye of the needle, that the actual little door, just think of a big version of a dog door, right? Of a, of a pet door on your house. That's what it was, right? And it was basically people trying to teach away this and say, well, you know, the eye of the needle was made for people, not for camels. And so in order for camels to pass through the eye of the needle, they had to be, you had to unpack the camel with all the stuff, you know, and the camel had to get on its knees, which if you know camels, that's a very hard thing to do to get the camel to get down there and sort of crawl. And that's the only way a camel could go through the needle. Now I've heard this, if you nod your head, if you've ever heard this example, I'm here, Blair's shaking his head. You're okay. A couple of you. Good, good, good. Just want you to know that's totally false. It doesn't make any sense. All right. 
It was an urban myth. There's no archaeological evidence for this whatsoever. I mean, there, there have been doors on, on gates and things. It is true. But, but when you start looking at it, it's like, well, that's probably not likely. There's nothing else to support that particular teaching, although it was a way to try to explain it, which is fine. However, there's a much easier explanation, okay? Uh, in, depending on how you read your scriptures, depending on, uh, most of it was translated, Matthew was written to Hebrew to the, to the Hebrew people, there's a lot of written in Greek, um, but at that time, um, oftentimes, you might have heard this before, but Aramaic was a common tongue. Everybody nod your head if you're with me. Aramaic was a common tongue. The best example I have for this is when we go to Kenya, when we serve in Kenya, right? English is the common tongue in Kenya, all right? Even though their country speaks Swahili, right? And the tribes in the country have their own language. So we serve the Maasai and they have Ma, right? So there's, there's three languages. So to, I mean, you know, it's fun to go worship in Kenya and see three languages happening. It's amazing. But English was still, if they needed to use a word, sometimes they would just find the common word. And, and the, the, the better explanation for this that really is much more literal is the idea that there's a word used that describes a rope, okay? A rope. And it's kind of, it's the same word that they would have in the Greek said camel. So it's this word in Aramaic that just describes the part of the rope that is bound and intertwined. You guys with me? Because you guys know rope is like thousands of fibers. Am I losing anybody today? Just nod your head, you're there, right? It's thousands of fibers, okay? I'm not going to build a rope for you, okay? That'll just take too long. It's thousands of, but it, but it goes through a process that bounds it, binds it together. And so you sometimes see the fray at the end of the rope, you know? But the part of the rope that was like tightly bound had this terminology to it. And so Jesus was just being, you know, as literal as he could be, saying, look, just like you can't get that part of a rope through the eye of a needle, right? You can't do it. So whether you believe the extreme that he was talking about an actual camel, which is weird. Jesus wasn't Southern. He didn't say weird things like pigs fly and all sorts of things like that. He never said things like that. He never exaggerated that way. It was, it was like, no, it's, it's the camel. You can't get that through the eye of a needle. Oh, you might get a couple little frayed pieces through, but you can't get it through, which makes so much more sense when Peter and them, then the guys respond, because again, Jesus says it and he says, well, this is, sorry, this is the question that, that prompts, by the way, I'm going to share the question, and then come back to it later. But the question from the encounter that he's getting ready to work them through is this question. Go back to the question. Do we, yeah, go back to the question. Do we trust in what riches provide or do we trust in the one who richly provides? Okay. This is the question. This is the question that, that Jesus wanted to teach them, which is why I wanted to give it to you now before we continue on with the story, because it is the question he's going to come back around to, right? This is the trouble with the rich young ruler. This is the problem. There was too much for him trusting in what riches provide rather than simply trusting in the one who richly provides. This is where the rubber met the road for him. And so Jesus is taking this opportunity, because this is the primary question, to teach them. You can't get the camel <laughs> through the eye of a needle. That's, that's like someone who, someone who trusts in what riches provide. 
So he goes on. Let me continue the story. The disciples were astounded, amazed, astounded. Let's just say confused. That's a better word, right? That's the, that's the actual word. They're confused, right? Then who in the world can be saved? Like, like can you imagine the response in that moment? That they're expecting crown, you know, they're expecting uh, thrones. They don't see anything wrong with the wealthy. The wealthy have the power. The wealthy are the ones who get things done. It's going to take that to, to accomplish the mission to overthrow Rome. Like, like, like here we are talking about the kingdom of God. And he said, well, you can't, you can't, the rich can't get there. The rich can't do it. Well, how in the world? Who can do it then if they can't do it? And I love this response. You know, this is Jesus. Who in the world can be saved? Well, he looked at them intently and said, well, humanly speaking, it's impossible. Humanly speaking, it's impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. So again, Jesus sort of takes the moment with the breath and says, because they, they, I mean, these guys draw the conclusion. Jesus is talking about putting your trust in riches rather than putting your trust in the one who richly provides. And the disciples go, well, good grief, Jesus. Who can do that? Who in the world can even be saved if that's the problem? And Jesus goes, well, you can't save yourself. <laughs> right? It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't save yourself, but with God, everything's possible. Everything is possible with God. You can't do it. Now, I love this because this is, if you want to talk about someone who borderlined, I don't say borderline, I'm trying to give him grace, borderlined arrogance and pride, it's Peter, right? You guys know Peter, always saying something dumb, right? So Jesus says, you can't do it. But Peter rises to the challenge, right? And he wants, he wa listen, he just wants the recognition. He says, listen, this is Peter's response. He said, we've given up everything to follow you, right? Like we, what about us? Okay, look, you just said the rich can't do it. The, the rich can't get in there. The camel can't go through the needle. Uh, you, 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 you just told me that no one can do it, only God can do it, but we've given up everything. Can you just hear the voice of Peter? What about us? Like, I gave up my family business. I gave up years of being a fisherman. I gave up the livelihood. I gave up everything. When you said, come follow me, and he dropped his nets, is what the Bible says, and followed Jesus from that point forward. And I love Jesus' response. Again, you, gotta, you, you, gotta, you have to love the way Jesus just has so compassionate and gracious with his disciples. He's a friend. He's their, he's their heavenly father and incarnate. He says this. Yes. Can you just hear the voice to Peter? Yes, Peter. Yes. I assure you, Peter. Let me just, let me just speak some words to help you understand. I assure you that everyone who has given up his house or his brothers or sisters, again, he's speaking to Peter. This is what you gave up. This is what you walked away from. Anyone who's done that, or mother or father, or children, or property, for my sake and for the good news, I assure you, keeps going, you will receive now in return 
a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property, along with persecution. Oh, Jesus, why'd you have to go throw that in there? Right? You're going to be blessed now. There, there, is a, there is a blessing, big picture blessing that comes. Mm-hmm. There we go. Come back. You'll receive now what's there, along with persecution, and in the world to come. That person will have eternal life. Again, which goes back to the original question. How do I have eternal life? So he's answering the disciples after he kind of walks through this teaching and says, look guys, it's harder for someone who trusts in riches. It's impossible, really, on their own. It's not impossible with God. Peter, I understand what you're saying. You did give up everything, and I'm telling you that everything that you gave up, everything that you gave up, does return to you, along with persecution. And in the end, you will have eternal life. In the life to come, you will. You will be with me eternally. And then he says this, but many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem the least important now will be the greatest then. Once again, shining a little light on the economy of God, just shining a light on kind of how things may appear now versus how things will be. What things look like now versus how things are actually, actually are. And this encounter, so again, sometimes can, can get confusing, but I want us to bring, I want to bring us around just this one idea, because this is where we're going to spend our time, the lion's share of our time over the next uh, couple weeks in this series, is that a whole heart, this idea of what does it look like to love God with all of your heart, because there's a war for your heart. But living this life of a whole heart is really living a generous life. It's living a generous life. A life where nothing holds you back. Nothing holds you captive. Everything that you've placed your trust in is in the one who richly provides. You will not get stuck. You will not stumble through this. This isn't a give and get you know, again, prosperity gospel. It's not a give and get thing. If it was, they didn't read the second to the last promise, right? Oh, you'll get it now along with persecution. Oh, you might get some now along with pain and trouble and heartache and persecution for my name and my sake and the good news. But you will have eternal life. During a Sermon on the Mount, what we know and the reason that we've made this claim that this wholeheartedness really does result, has, you know, nobody can see your heart. Nobody can see this wholehearted devotion to God. But we believe, according to what Jesus says, this looks like, in terms of how it's, and what's produced in your life, it looks like a generous life where nothing holds you back. We know this is true, again, because on the Sermon on the Mount, this is where Jesus is teaching So many things. I can't go through the whole Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount, early on, this is before this encounter, early on, Jesus is trying to make things clear. So he walks them through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. You know, he's walking them through the Beatitudes. Then he walks them through the law. You know, you heard it said don't murder. Well, welcome. Here's your cookie. You know, I say this, 
right? He walks him through several things. You've heard it said about this, but here's what I say. Then he walks him into how to pray. This is in chapter six. Our father, right? Who art in heaven. That's my King James version coming out right there, right? My upbringing. Who art in heaven. This is the next thing. He teaches them how to pray, and then he opens up the teaching on what a whole heart life looks like. And it starts like this. Can't go into all of it today, but this is just going to just kind of prime you, prime the pump for the series. He says this, I don't want you to store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal, right? I don't want you to think about what's great now because what's great now all goes away. You can't stop rust. Anybody from the north knows this, right? You can't stop rust, right? You can't stop the moths from eating. You can't stop everything from ending in the fire. Watch Toy Story 3, right? You can't stop any of those things, right? It all ends up in the fire, right? And you can't stop other people taking what's yours. He's like, so just understand there's, there's so much right now in your mind. He says, but I don't want you to store up treasures there. I want you to store treasures in heaven where moths can't, and moths and rust can't destroy, and thieves can't break in and steal. There's, there's something different about storing your treasures in heaven. There's something different about living out this kind of life. And then he says this, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart are also going to be, right? You, have, you might have heard this and memorized this, you know, in the NIV or the King James Version, right? Wherever your treasure is, your heart also be like, it's this picture of there is a, there's an intertwining. Everybody with me? There's an intertwining between what we treasure, what we value, what, what we hold most dear that's, that's connected to our hearts. Because where our heart is, it's where our treasure is. And where our treasure is, is where our heart is. And then he says this, and you guys know this verse, no one can serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other. You're going to be, oh, what's that word? Devoted, right? You're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. NIV says money, King James Version mammoth or something like that, some other weird word for money. I love the, the NLT because it, it just kind of gives this picture. That idea when Jesus made it clearer to trust in riches, to be enslaved by money. Jesus paints the, the war for your heart as clear as he can possibly make it. Like we have to work hard to muddy this up. Everybody with me? We have to work hard to muddy this up. But he says there's two masters right? There's two masters. You can't serve both. You cannot be devoted to both. You cannot live a whole heart to both. It's going to be one or the other. It's going to be God or you're going to be enslaved to money. Now, we see that in the rich young ruler. Again, the encounter is very clear. We see this. I'm going to give you just a few quick things as we wind this down because I'm kind of working us towards the whole big picture of the series here. And then I'm going to make you a couple promises at the end. 
But what we see in Jesus' teaching, crystal clear, and what we see from the encounter, even though we have to walk through the context of the encounter, is that Jesus says there's a war for your heart. There's a war for this devotion. There's a war for even when you have a desire, even when you are the rich young ruler and you really do desire and claim to want everything that God wants for you, that there is the possibility that you are serving another master. There's the possibility that you are being held back, which means you are not able to live with a whole heart. Which is why I'm convinced that this living out, this wholeheartedness in our life shows up as a generous life. But we have to also, just for a minute, talk about what generosity is and isn't. Because I don't want, I, I could feel everybody clench up right when I said it, right? Let me just talk about what generosity is and isn't, just so you can hear me. Okay, just so you know where we're going. All right? Generosity, a generous life, is, not, is a heart issue, not a money issue. Okay? We're not simply going to be talking about money. Okay? I understand generosity and money kind of go hand in hand, but it's not a money issue. This isn't a money series. This isn't a money message. It's a heart series. It's a heart message. Now, where your treasure is, your heart is. And where your heart is, your treasure is. I can't help that those are intertwined. That's just what God said. But this is a heart series. It's a generous life, a, a whole heart. Generosity is a heart thing. It's not about money. When we think it's about money, here's the problem. We think it's about these random acts of giving, right? It's these random acts of giving. And let me just applaud you and just tell you how great you guys are. Everybody here, for the most part, everybody here is a good giver, right? You, you have random acts of giving. You do, right? If I were to show you, listen, if I were to just, you know, dive into that thing in your heart that just inspires you and gets you all jacked up, if I were to talk about that for just a, a good period of time and then kind of give you a little sales pitch as to how you could be involved in it, oh, I could get you, I could get a random act of gift, couldn't I? Right? Show you some starving kids and some, I don't know, abused puppies or something like that. Like, you know, it just depends on what breaks you. You know, there's something that inspires you, there's someone that breaks you, or let's just be honest, like a good Baptist preacher and a good lot of preacher, I could just guilt you, right? I mean, like this is what generosity has meant to many people, is generosity is just these random acts of giving, right? Even in the best way to the worst way, it's these random acts of giving, and yet generosity is so much more because it is a heart issue, not an issue of money, whether inspired, broken, or guilty. Here's what I know to be true. We don't feel rich, but we are. We are. But we feel generous, but we aren't. Okay? That should be a but, not a B. We feel, we, we don't feel rich, but we are. Okay? I, the only reason I say this, if you haven't done any traveling, you haven't gone across the world, look, try to explain your financial woes to somebody from around the world. <sighs> Good luck, you know? We are rich. We are extraordinarily blessed. We live in the most blessed country in the world. We live in the most blessed sections and the most blessed suburbs and the most blessed city. You know, we are just like beyond blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And the reason I know that is because the majority of you live in a house 
and then you have a house for your car. And take it one step further, sometimes we have so much stuff, we can't even put the car in the house for the car. Everybody with me? So we don't feel rich because we can explain it away with all the insecurities and financial pressure and cost of, you know, we can do all that stuff, but we are. But because of this misunderstanding of generosity, oftentimes we feel generous, but we're not. We're not. Here's a few reasons why. One is generosity is not spontaneous. It's not some inspiration or brokenness or manipulation to try to get you to give something in that moment. Like, yeah, we gave something. You know, something, there was a need that came up and we gave something. That's not necessarily generosity. That's good. That's a good giving. You're being a good giver. That's not generosity. It doesn't even matter how big the gift is, right? Doesn't have any, no, it doesn't matter how many zeros are attached to your gift. You want to know why? Because no one knows whether that's generous except you and God. Right? Jesus praised the widow's might. You guys remember that? The, the, the pennies? So it's not the amount. So we oftentimes feel generous, or quite frankly, we assume it's the rich. The rich are the ones who are generous, who have the excess, who have the ability to give, and that's not true either. Because if, you're not, if you don't have a generous life, some of the most generous people I know don't have as much as you think they have. They're just living a generous life. We have to understand this, that, that Jesus made it as crystal clear. You are intrinsically bound to a master, and it's either going to be God, or it's going to be trusting in what riches provide. And we're so bound to it, we do not see it. We do not see it. We do not see them as chains. I'm just going to give you a few on, on the screen. But we don't even see these as chains. Prosperity and debt is a chain. The, the, the constant desire to not only want more, but to also feel like it's never enough. Right? It's not just the wanting more, because we can look at that and be like, oh, that's greed. Don't you have enough? on the outside looking in, but the reality is, is that when most of us feel like it's never enough, we, don't even, we couldn't even tell you what enough is, therefore debt. Now, most people can see the chains in debt, but a lot of people can't. These are chains, right? Your possessions, your stuff. Let's just be honest. I mean, most of your stuff, you'd probably be glad to get rid of. Don't tell your wife or your husband besides, you know, you know. But, but Jesus already knows your heart. And if he asked you to give up that one thing, oh man, what a wrestling match you would have. Because he knows. He knows what the possession is. He knows what the chain is. And the worst one of all in Western culture is security and stability. What we put our trust and our hope in to give us security and stability we don't even see it as chains. We don't even see it as a problem because it's so natural. It's so intertwined, like the camel rope. It's so wound so tightly together, we cannot see it. And that's what we're going to spend the next few weeks talking about, is the fact that it's so, it's so wound to being a heart issue that Jesus said, look, you didn't choose it, but by default, you are serving a master who is going to fail you. 
by default, by putting your trust in what riches provide, you cannot live wholeheartedly to me. Which is why I look at the rich young ruler and I have compassion. Because I know that for my life, a lot of times in my life, I confessed God, I claimed to be serving God, I wanted my heart in worship to God, I wanted to give all that I could to God, and yet I held so many things back. I, 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 I put my trust in so many other things. And when rubber hit the road and when life hit, hit my faith, I didn't even realize how much in chains I was. That there's no way I'm living wholeheartedly to God. There's no way I'm loving God with all of my heart because he came to me and said, Matt, walk away from it all. Especially at points in my life. Oh, how sad I would have shrunk my head in defeat. In defeat. Because little did I know I was serving another master. Because God said, I can't serve both. I cannot serve both. I'm going to be devoted to one. So let me just make a couple promises real quick. We, this is, again, this is the big picture of where we're going, all right? Let me just, before you think of the hundred things you're going to do next weekend to not have to come back to church, okay? <laughs> let me go ahead and make a couple promises, okay? I don't want your money, okay? I don't want your money. There's going to be no special offerings, no pictures of puppies or starving kids or no, I'm just telling you, okay, let me just go ahead and say, we've carved it out. We may do an end-of-year giving campaign, but we made sure we're far enough away from it, okay? Right now, there is no special offering. There's no building projects yet. There's nothing like that. I am not trying to get something from you. This is a heart series. That's why we called it a whole heart. But we are going to spend the next few weeks talking about the chains around that heart that we didn't even realize were there. And to what that looks like in terms of just the beautiful picture of the freedom of a whole heart devoted to God living out this generous life, regardless of the means in which you have, you have the ability to do so. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for, um, well, I'm certainly thankful for the way that you've challenged me through this message that... Um, God, so often in my life, as I just considered my past, um, God, there was so much that I was holding back from you and not even realizing that I was putting so much trust in what I could provide and what wealth could provide and what means could provide versus my wholehearted devotion into the one who God for all of my life has so richly provided. Thank you, Jesus for all of us as we learn together how to live this generous life, how to live with a whole heart. God, may your spirit be powerfully at work in us. May you draw us back in the next couple of weeks with, a, with not just a, a, an, an anticipation, but a real hunger and a desire to learn how to be devoted, fully devoted to you. We trust you that you can do this for us because, God, with us, it's just not possible. But with you, everything is possible.
In your name, Jesus. Amen.